Morning. I understand that the uh, the camping trip did not go off as planned. Probably good. We would have had a major flu outbreak in the in the body. I'm suspecting. What's that? Frostbite. Could be all sorts of associated uh, issues here. All right. We're down to the last couple of sessions in this look at social justice from God's perspective. So I want to I want to begin by just asking a question. If you were in a position If you were in a position to have your voice heard, to be able to tell the world what the most critical social justice issue is, starting point, let's say, of, of, of a prescription for the world, what would you say? What would you say? Don't show favoritism. Okay? So you've got the microphone. Okay. Property rights. Okay. If what we've been saying is true, and Jack and Sale, what we've begun with, and I'll, I'll let you guys add to it if you'd like, what we've begun with is if we had, if you had the microphone, in effect, you had a position from which you could speak to society about the most, you had one thing that you could talk to society about as the foremost, the starting point, the, the, the key thing that would make society more just, what would it be? And, and I'm not forcing you to say something, but if you'd like to, you can add, add that. Anybody else? So you would agree with O.C. God's will. You would agree with it. 
And I will say, you three women are exactly right. What have we been saying? What did Jesus say? Matthew 22. Teacher, what what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In effect, the second flows from the first. That's either true or it's not true. We either divorce what God says. And see, we're talking about us as Christians. We're talking about the church as missionaries. We talked about the Old Testament church. The Old Testament church were supposed to be missionaries. They were not supposed to be people who were proud of the fact that God picked them out and set them up and blessed them. That was explicitly not what they were supposed to be about. Is that right? They were picked out precisely because they were the least likely people that you would pick out to make a missionary society out of. The absolute, you can't pin it on their genetics, you can't pin it on their cleverness, you can't pin it on anything other than the fact that God said, I'm going sh- to teach the world lessons as a process of my redemptive plan through these people. And what were the lessons? that they were supposed to teach. Right? God's will. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And I'll confess. I think you would confess as well. We talked about this two or three weeks ago. For so much of my life, my response to something that I saw as bad in society, a trend or specific situation, whatever it might be, is what? There ought to be a law. How many times have we heard that? There ought to be a law. Well, there is. Well, there is. There is a law. And if we as the people of God are not pointing to it, then we have failed in our mission. We failed in our mission. Now, in pointing to it, are we supposed to point to it in the way that the Jews did that Jesus was constantly in friction with. Constantly in friction with. Look at us. We've got it wired. Get with the program. Is that not what the Pharisees were about? If you people would just get righteous, then God would pour out His blessings again and we'd be back on top where we belong. And by the way, we'd be at the top of the top. 
because we would be responsible for that. Is that not, in a very short summary, basically why Jesus is in constant conflict with the Pharisees? They were not repentant people. That's the dichotomy. Come follow me. They called these people who were with Jesus sinners. These people were sinners, but they were repentant sinners. Pharisees didn't like that because they weren't willing to repent. Jesus draws that contrast all the way through his ministry, right? These are people, this is not the Jesus, and and this is a view. This is not the tolerant stoner Jesus sitting at the back of the room while the wild party's going on saying, it's all good, man. (laughs) That is not what Jesus was about. And if the only thing we hear in the confrontation between Jesus and those that found the woman in the act of adultery, somehow they didn't find the guy who she was with in the act of adultery. That's that's always an interesting aspect of that story, isn't it? Yeah. So that but if the only thing we hear about that, we know what that we know what that what that confrontation was about. We know who was in the wrong in the centrality of that story. But unless we hear what Jesus said at the end, go and sin no more. What was it about what Jesus said? Was it just that Jesus told the woman that she'd been married six times and the man that she was with was not her husband? Was it just the fact that he could summon that information up? I don't think so. I don't think so. She was confronted by, what did she say? I perceive that you are a prophet. What do prophets do? Called the people to righteousness. Right? Primary task of the prophets was return to God. So, we are God's emissaries. We are God's mouthpiece. We are the body of Christ who, what? Always was listening to the Father. I don't do anything without consulting the Father. So, so what? So we are to look like Christ. We are to speak like Christ. We are to encourage each other within the body of Christ to look more like Christ. We are to confess to each other so we know how to encourage each other. We are to confess in order to know how to repent. Because we are to be the repenting people. 
part of the sweet savor of God in the, in the ear of the non-believer is not the person saying, I used to be like you, but now I've got it all together. It is that person saying, Hey man, I'm a sinner like you, but let me tell you the rest of the story. I am not living in sin because I have a Savior. I have an equipper in the Holy Spirit. This is good news you need to hear. This is not me setting myself up as the one who's got it all together. I'm pointing to the one who's got it all together, and that's Jesus Christ who's got it all together, had it all together, the only human being that ever had it all together, the second Adam that did what the first did not and could not. Jimmy? Sure. And is that not potentially something, is that not a feedback mechanism? In effect, we've talked in the past about the whole concept in 1 John of walking in the light. If we're walking toward God, now Jesus walked directly toward Him. There was no shadow of turning as the scripture talks about. Jesus is walking directly toward him. We're walking at little angles. And what do little angles, if you're walking toward the sun, do? They throw off shadows, right? The most wonderful thing for a Christian is not the sin, but it's the Holy Spirit's gift of the recognition of sin. We ought not to be in guilt, wallowing in guilt, because God is showing us our sin through the Spirit. We are to be rejoicing that God is showing us our sin through the Spirit, and we are to be repenting and asking for equipping, asking for strength not to continue to walk in that sin. That's glorious. That's not a... I'm, you know, and this was how, how I grew up. Boy, if you got outside the lines, you were damned until and unless you repented and, and confessed. Not if God's showing me my, my sin, I can know that I am in Him if He's showing me my sin and it's causing grief. That's what I can know. And that's not grief that continues because I know I'm forgiven. He's promised. He's promised that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. That's 1 John 1 again. He shows us the shadow. We confess and repent. He is saying, not a problem. I'm seeing Jesus, not you. Okay, with that background... 
This has to be, has to be our default position. God's will, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is, it should be, a level of actual fear and what the other meaning of that word is, utter respect. I did fear my dad. But thankfully I had a dad that engendered ultimate respect too. Dad could really spank. <laughs> and I got a few. But he was crying every time he did it. And he was hugging me up close after he did it. And I was repenting while he did it. <laughs> so that has to be the key. What we have in Christ that allows us, allows us to be God's voice for social justice, both in spoken words and in non-spoken words. What we have is we have the Spirit who is urging, guiding, equipping us to respect and have the fear of the Lord. Having that, we understand that people are fallen. We don't buy into the idea that things are getting better all the time. We don't buy into the fact that we could bring utopia to earth. We reject that idea. We resist that idea. We call people... Where have you ever seen that? Hang on a minute. Where have you ever seen that? What do you know about yourself that would argue against what you, what, what you seem to be saying? So, first and foremost, in the fear of the Lord, in the knowledge of God's will, what are we to be? We're to be the body of Christ in the world. We're to be the body of Christ in the world. Corporately and in a sense individually. We are not equipped individually to be the body of Christ. That's why we're in fellowship with each other. That's why God puts us... You know, a hand just can't do much by itself. It's got to have the rest of that body. But we are also to be God's representatives, right? Individually. So we are to look like Christ. So what, what would be the primary means of looking like Christ? And that's a question. What would be the primary means of looking like Christ? What was the thing? What was the thing? We've already alluded to it this morning. What was the thing that marked who Christ was? 
He's listening. He's listening to the Father. Only the Father. He is not listening to his culture. He is listening to the Father. He's not asking the culture to comment on his Father. As all the prophets before him did, he's explicitly saying, what's the problem here is the culture. What is a culture? What's the first part of that? What's the first part of that? A cult. What is it, what, in effect, religion does that group of people have? Does that society have? Because Bob Dylan was absolutely right. You are going to serve somebody. So what is that society's religion? I would say our society's religion is self-gratification, self-justification. I think that's largely what every society is. It may take different forms, right? But isn't that what we do? Isn't that what human beings do? Isn't that what the bargain in the garden was? Did God really say? You shall be as God. Determining what's good and evil. Isn't that what? Isn't that what happens? So the, so the first thing we ought to be noted for is a deep reverence that manifests in listening to the Father. This is what I think that the maker of the universe is saying. I'd ask you to consider this. And living like we listen. Which is not sinless. It is not. It is not living like we are holier than thou. But frankly, we should be holier than the pagan culture we live in. An excuse that says we should live like everybody else so we won't look uppity is kind of a lousy argument. So we don't buy into the world's concepts of right and wrong and fairness. We don't buy into the dominant cult's concepts of right and wrong and fairness. We understand fallenness. We do what God's people didn't do in the Old Testament and what the prophets called them to. Read the prophets. I did it not long ago. Again, it was just, being in Isaiah, I had never been there. Certainly not in the way we were in it for all those months. And that was good. It was good. And I started reading the other prophets. Boy, a theme in the prophets is Sabbath. And that's not talking about Saturday. That's talking about the rule and reign of God is talking about trusting God. The prophets call God's people Sabbath people. What does that mean? What did, what did Israel not do? At the end of the day, what did they not do? We could say obey God, right? 
But really what they didn't do was trust God. They did not believe that things would turn out well unless they took things in hand. They decided that they would look around at the other societies and see what looked like it was working there. It's sort of like that whole idea of, I look across the street and the neighbor is driving the you know, great car, has the, you know, the, the great house, however we want to, you know. But what we don't know is his life is a wreck, is in shambles. And that's not to say that everybody that has a nice car and a nice house has a, has a life that's in shambles. That is not what I'm talking about. All I'm saying is appearances are deceiving. Right? We don't take our cue from appearances. We trust God. That's what Sabbath is about. When God rested, it wasn't because He was tired. It was because he had done all that he deemed necessary. I will now sit and rule. I have delegated tasks of expanding this creation. Delegated tasks of multiplying images of me in the world. Now I'm going to sit and rule That's what it's about, and that's what is the hardest thing, if if we test ourselves on it, that's the hardest thing to do, is trust God. To really believe that if we did not have X program, that things could possibly turn out okay. We don't believe God's promise. That is our besetting sin as well. God has promised. Is He trustworthy or not? That's got to be, that's got to be our question. We need to, and this is an, this is an old, world, old word, but it serves well. As families... We need to be, and David and I were blessed. Karen was blessed to go to a conference this week that was, the gospel just ran through it. And it was about marriage and what marriage is and what marriage isn't, but it was about marriage and what marriage is. What marriage is is a picture to the world of Christ and the church. It's the like yet not like joined together in a way that illustrates God's living epistles in the world is what we're, is what we're called to be. So we got to, to, to hear about, if that's true, then what is it about Christ and the church? Christ gave himself up for it, right? So the nature of marriage is to be not mutually affirming, not mutually satisfying. Satisfaction will come, but 
the purpose of marriage is to serve each other, is to sacrifice for each other. And all these things will be added to you. They will. Do we believe it? That's the question. I haven't always. Then, beyond that, what are we to be doing? We are to be multiplying. We are to be productive in what? Bringing the world to Christ. What's step one in the process? This is where that old word, old word comes in. We're to catechize our children. That's an old fancy term for systematically teaching our children about God. Bring up that child in the way they will go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. They might go through a valley of a shadow of death at some point. But do we believe that promise? If we have catechized our children, even if they walk away for a while, do we believe it? Are we willing to believe it? i got to confess to you, I reserve a part of my, of my mind and heart where I don't fully believe that. I am trying to believe that. I hope you will encourage me to believe that. Having confessed this to you, I hope you'll walk up to me. Are you believing God? I invite you, please, to do that. Because that's my besetting sin, is I want to hedge God's bets, so to speak. I want to supply what I don't really believe that God will supply. We're to encourage each other, both in the family and in the community of God, in the body of Christ. We're to encourage each other to love and what? Good works that the Father has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what being in the body of Christ is about. That's this whole deal of confessing to each other, repenting with each other, encouraging one another. That's what it's all about. When we sit as spectators in a church and don't live in each other's lives because we won't reveal ourselves, then we are impoverishing ourselves. We are starving ourselves. Literally starving ourselves. This is not a metaphor. Please encourage me to be a confessing and repenting person. And I'll try to encourage you to be. And then we open up our lives and we can bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We come from a fellowship that for years was on a hunt for the law of Christ. Described as a little boy that's digging through the pile of horse manure. 
There's got to be a pony in there someplace. We're looking for a set of rules here because the New Testament has supplanted the old. And we're looking for a new set of rules. What's the law of Christ about? It's first the law that Christ kept, right? Christ said, you don't need another law. I hadn't come to, do, I hadn't come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill the law. Color in the outline. Show you what it really was about. And what it really was about was love of the Father and love of neighbor. Bearing one another's burdens. So, that's inside the church. That's lowering the guard. That's being willing to risk. That's a Sabbath principle. Risk that God is good, that He is love, that He wants nothing but the best for us. Risk it. Risk revealing ourselves to each other in our weakness, but also in our strength. I benefit so incredibly from hearing Brother Frank and from seeing Miss Alice and others that inspire me. John Carr, others, these mothers around here. Brian and Tracy, little Locke, oh my goodness. I mean, that's just so beautiful to watch that young man growing up. And I know it's been hard, but it's been... But let me tell you, it's a living epistle. Because my wife just taught him in class and said, he is so good in class. He's so interested. He is responding. Having taught kids in class, that's not always easily achievable. So, outside the church... We're to use these gifts that God has given us to what? Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will say, thing one. That's thing one. That's thing one, and that is a stumbling stone. How do I do that? God has gifted certain people with gifts of evangelism, but He has given every Christian the opportunity to be an epistle written in flesh. Every one of them. So if our families, if, if this body of Christ looks different to the world, In terms of we are fighting the culture. We are, and I'm talking about, I'm talking about guerrilla warfare here. In the sense that we are determined that we're going to serve each other in our marriages instead of just coexist. Or instead of looking for fulfillment, you complete me. What was that, Jerry Maguire? You complete me. Well, there is a measure of that. 
That's the complementarity that God designed in marriage. But that's not, it is not for us. It is for God's glory. That's what I heard this week and I was incredibly impressed by and convicted by because that is not, that is not what I had in mind when I married Lois. Hate that. We're to do little things. We're to, it's an organic process of being living epistles. We're to be courteous. We're to be the person who doesn't lay on the horn when the person cuts us off. To try to think, well, that, you know, they try not to go to the to the to the J word, as in jerk. Immediately. There could be something else going on. Or just not worrying about it. There's those little things that will surprise people. Those little things where you got too much change and you give it back. Where we're the biggest tippers in the crowd. Things like that. Friendly, helpful, looking for opportunities to serve. Lisa's not in here, but this one was just a kind of a sound bite that came to me that I'm, I'm going to use in the writing. Live in the front yard. We tend to live on the back deck. We can't see anybody from our back deck. Now, for some people, the back deck might be the front yard. It depends on the neighborhood. If everybody's living in their backyards, my point is that if we are isolating ourselves, Rosaria Butterfield spoke at this conference. Amazing testimony. Those of you who have not read her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, won't know that she was one of the leading um, feminist professors in America. She taught women's studies, queer theory, as it was called. She, she was a visiting professor at Harvard. She was a full professor at Syracuse. Gave up everything for the cause of Christ. The way she came to Christ was the most unlikely of ways. She decided as an academic study to write on the paternalism that was inherent in the Promise Keepers movement at the time. And I went to the Real Million Man March. This is, no, this is not saying anything good about me, but the Real Million Man March was a million men on the, what do you call the center of the capital? The mall. You were there. I mean... I've never seen that many people in my life in one place. Never, ever, ever, ever. Well, she was going to write about that because she thought that was a bad thing. And she wrote an article in the Syracuse newspaper as sort of a precursor to this, sort of lambasting and sort of reviling. Reviling. That's one of those in the list in 1 Corinthians 6 of people who can't inherit the kingdom of God. 
and a pastor in the town wrote her a sweet letter. She couldn't make herself throw it away. But basically saying, hey, I think there's a side of this story you hadn't heard. I'd be really happy to talk to you about that over a cup of coffee. She says in her book, and she is, by the way, an English professor by training, 19th century literature, whole book method. She went and talked to this guy. This guy and his wife, they couldn't meet at a coffee shop. She came over to the house. He found out that she was vegan, found out she didn't believe in air conditioning. They had the air conditioner off, and they had a vegan meal for her and welcomed her and began talking, not apologetically about the Scripture, but not finger-pointingly. And she called herself in this talk, ultimately became a church stalker. She had to find out more about him. And she had to find out more about... And she, by the way, had to read the Bible to write her academic paper and became utterly impressed as a whole book literature professor with the absolute continuity and flow of Scripture. She said, I could not escape that. It impressed me. And eventually, it saved me. And she would go literally... She was in a lesbian relationship. She, she was the butch partner in the relationship. She looked a lot different than she does now. And she would park her truck across the street from the church and watch these 12 passenger vans unload a house full of kids and say, who are these people? <laughs> Almost all of them homeschoolers. It was just, it was a, the ultimate cultural divide. The ultimate cu- cultural divide. Anyway, it's just an amazing, amazing story of what watching Christians just do life did. And that's all that happened. These people were not preaching to her. They were not avoiding opportunities to to tell the truth where it fit. And it fit a lot with her because she was probing. I mean, part of the time it was a research project for her. And then it shifted and became something completely different. Amazing, amazing story. Just an amazing, but that's an aspect. What happened in her life was a group of Christians living in their front yard. Encourage me to do that. I am a backyard person. I come home and I have interaction all day with people as a matter of course in what I do, and I'm ready for me time.
So that's another way you can encourage me. We need to, we need to stop. We're going to pick up here, and it's a, actually a good place to stop because now we'll take some of these things and we'll get into sort of a, an, an idea process of what are those ways? What does that look like for us? Let's be specific. Let's help each other with ideas on how we do this thing that we're talking about. Thank you all.